Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'd rather you like overreached a little bit and and had to be reined in. And, yes. and that's that's the vibe of this group. And I would love to see more teams really being like, not like I'm going to question the structure, I'm going to question the <laughs> practice, but I'm going to like lean so much into the practice that I almost fuck it up. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hello, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about rock bands and video games. But before we get into that surprising set of topics, let's check in. Let's check in. Because we always check in. Why do we check in? Uh, (laughs) Say it with her now. (laughs) So we can start on time, so we can learn more about each other, so that we can have equal airtime, and so that we can learn answers to prompts like this one. If you were stranded with a group in the wild... Whoa, this is so funny. What would your role mix look like? <laughs> I would probably be kicked out by the group immediately for suggesting that we all establish a mm, role mix. I'd be like, shut up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get out of here, nerd. No, I think, it, you know, I would probably be very interested in like the rescue plan. So mm. some other people might be building shelter. They might be see, like foraging. Those are things that I probably would skip and I would be like, I'm going to work on like, where the hell are we and what are our best chances for being found? Mm. So anybody that wants to work on that, come join me. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, unsurprisingly, it would probably be much more of like community management. (laughs) Like while you're like looking externally and figuring out like how we're going to, how we're going to leave. I think I would be like, okay, let's decide, you know, what are the jobs to be done? How do we prioritize those things? How do we staff them? What does the schedule look like so that we don't all die while we're waiting for the rescue plane? I love it. All right. Well. That very much tracks with like our archetypal roles in general. And also, I think the group would be lucky to have us. I mean, was there ever (laughs) any question? There's a reason that we're we're saving up for a commune. So (laughs) today's topic is everything I needed to know about org design I learned from playing music or video games. And I guess I want to start by asking you, as one half of this equation, what sparked this? Like, how did how did this idea come to you? Yeah. So it's it's actually, I think you're going to find this amusing. So I decided recently that I needed to start playing more music again, because I haven't really been playing. For those who don't know, I'm a classically trained cellist. I started playing when I was six. It was a very big part of my identity as a young person. I nearly became a professional cellist, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. I decided recently that I wanted to start playing music more, and I looked on Craigslist, as one does, and I found this group of people who, as it turned out, were like about my age and live like 10 minutes away and play every other Sunday and were very excited for me to join them. And then 
I had a completely harrowing experience of actually doing that. (laughs) The start of which, and I swear to God, this is true, true story. As I was leaving, first of all, Ed was like, just have fun. Like, don't be nerd. Just have fun. And I was like, <laughs> literally, I don't, those words just like mean nothing to me right now. I'm like full blown fucking panic. And secondly, I almost called you in the car on my way there to be like, how do I be in a band? <laughs> I was just like, I, I got so in my head about having right. to do this thing in a totally different way that I was apoplectic. I love it. And then, and then what I realized is there's like actually a lot of parallel between this whole experience and what we do for a living. What about I you? Completely agree. Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, it's worth noting that I before I figured out how to do anything else, I also played music. I was not classically trained or nearly professional, but I did play in a lot of bands. And when I did sort of arrive in the world of organizations and business, it was surprising to me how useful some of those mm. skills were. But the experience I've had as an adult is actually going to something that I also was not as familiar with, which was like getting into these multiplayer games and battle royale games on the PlayStation. I had an old friend that I met when we were in fourth grade uh, ring me up a few years ago and be like, you're getting a PlayStation and we're going to get back in touch and here's how we're going to do it and I'm going to show you around. And the whole time that I was getting shown around this world of, of gamers, I was like, whoa, there, there is something org designy going on here that you would not expect. And there's some really, for all the bad press that it gets about toxicity and all this, there's actually some really healthy stuff going on as well. So yeah, I was excited to, to cross-pollinate these two hobbyist spaces and see what we can learn from them. So maybe start by maybe you sharing like what jumped out to you right away in terms of those similarities and what were, the, what were some of the like first major patterns? Yeah. So the first thing that jumped out to me was that in this situation, I behaved exactly like one of our clients <laughs> at the beginning. So this group of people that I'm playing with, like they jam, they don't have written music. They don't have a set list of songs. They have a Dropbox of like 80 charts that just have um, lyrics and chord names. And that is it. And so the parallel here is when we go into a working environment, Um, especially as we work with a lot of executives, a lot of them are very accustomed to going into a room, having fully prepared, having like their PowerPoint deck and their talking points and their script ready to go. And then just sort of like delivering, like stand and (laughs) deliver and like fucking nail it. Don't fuck it up. Concerto number nine. Do what you practiced and you'll be safe. And and to be honest, that's how classical music is. So in classical music, the way that it is written down, it is incredibly detailed. You know, as I said, I'm a cellist. So there are bowings, there are recommended fingering patterns, there are dynamics, there are tempos written, every single note is written. There's no riffing. You just learn to play the thing. And then when you show up to quartet or chamber orchestra or a symphony or whatever, you just fucking play your thing. Like right. follow the conductor, but what the conductor is doing is going, this is where we are. Play your fucking thing, <laughs> which is, which to me is, it's very much complicated. Like it's not easy to learn to right, play that right, right. thing. No, it's an incredibly, incredibly difficult. difficult thing to do, but nothing really surprising happens 
<laughs> Period. Right. Like, you know, sometimes like the, the timpanist will like drop a drumstick or something like that. Like accidents happen, but there's nothing emergent really. Right. Right. Like the best performance is the one that is most expected. That's like everything was exactly as it should be. Nobody, no flautist just like stands up and like takes eight bars. Ron Burgundy's all over the room. During foray. You know, it's like, that's just, that's not how it goes. And so it just, it felt like this incredibly apt parallel where every part of me wanted to be able to like prepare and practice and study so that I could show up and nail it. And there is no way to do that. And even when I tried to like listen to their music and like start to think about what cello parts would sound like, like the way that they have the tablature is almost all of it is transposed into different keys. So Mm. you, so like there's literally (laughs) so little prep that can be done. There's just these like very like loose containers that you have to show up and be in. And it freaked me out so bad. Cause like, Jam bands are fucking complexity and like orchestras are complication. And I was not ready. I was not ready to make that leap. And That's I was just great. like, man, this is how people feel that I work with probably. Yeah. Yeah. It is funny. I had a similar instinct with, with the gaming. So just, I guess as backdrop for anyone listening that has not played a battle Royale game I have uh, or a team based so one. You can tell me about that. What happens is that they build a lobby of you and your friends playing together in duos or trios or quartets. They build a lobby of 100 people, let's say, give or take, and they drop you all into a little map, a little virtual world. And as a team, you are fighting with usually some form of like tasers or guns or weapons or whatever. And whatever team is the last team standing wins. Like that's the game. And so it can take anywhere from 10 to 25 minutes to find out who that team is. Okay. And and what you decide and how you collaborate is going to determine whether you win or lose at all. And if it's like a fast, immediate, you know, death for everyone on the team or if, if something really goes right. And one of the things that I struggled with, similar to what you just said, is out of the gate, I was like, okay, I want to win, which is an instinct, like a kind of an older business instinct, right? Like I want to dominate. So mm-hmm. what is our strategy and what's our exact plan? And like, where are we going to mm-hmm. land? Is What's the best place to land? Should we land mm-hmm. here or should we land there? And like trying to overthink it. And as we got paired with better and better players and, and even some pro players who make more than I make in a year playing video games, which is ridiculous and amazing. They, they were so nonchalant about that. It was just like, mm-hmm. where do you want to land? And like, wherever, dude, wherever you want. Like, it doesn't matter. Just, you know, uh-huh. just pick a spot. And I'm like, what are you talking about? What if, if we land at the edge, we can work our way to the center and da, 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 da. That's not how they operate. How they operate is in a sense and respond orientation. Mm-hmm. And they're good enough that it doesn't matter where they land. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like asking McEnroe playing tennis against me, what's your strategy going to be? It's like, I don't, <laughs> my strategy is going to be to beat the shit out of him. <laughs> it doesn't matter which shot like, I my choose. My strategy is going to be to show up that day yeah, exactly. and then uh, we're good. Yeah. And so what I learned quickly was like, there's a different set of skills that are valued and and it's not this kind of like planning skill. Totally. Totally. And, you know, the planning thing, I think for, for me and tell, you know, tell me if this, if this tracks for you, but like, I, I understand it's, even though in our work, we are every single day trying to teach people to let go of this urge, the, the feeling that I could plan for something and therefore avoid discomfort or um, 
you know, underperformance or in this case, it, it also felt a little bit like an audition. Like I felt like I was going for the first time yeah. and they were going to tell me if I was like, welcome to come back, et cetera. And, and so there was really a part of my, my psyche that was just like, if you can't figure out a way to effectively plan for this, like you're toast basically. <laughs> right, right. And then, and then the ping ponging between that and like, there's actually not really a way to plan for this. Right. <laughs> um, was just like, really difficult. And it was funny because I, I found, and you know, we've talked on this show before about like avoidance mechanisms and I sort of like watched my brain do all of them and was like, maybe, you know, they, yeah. these, these guys play every two weeks. And I was like, maybe I won't go this Sunday and I'll like wait for a couple Sundays. And then it was like, maybe rather than that, I'll just like try like really listening to all of the music. <laughs> and it was like, I did all of these things that was just to like stave off the discomfort of jumping into a situation where I was really uncertain and really worried. And so it was just like that also, it was interesting to watch my ego do all of that work of like, okay, you have an identity about being an excellent musician. And this context is really challenging that right. identity. So like, here's a bunch of strategies and tactics for you to like not actually have to deal with this discomfort so that you can maintain <laughs> this identity of being an excellent musician and um and like none of them worked you know yeah that's so cool there's a quote going around on twitter right now about and I, I forget who to credit it to so i apologize maybe we'll hit it in the show notes but it's something along the lines of like people don't fear change they fear loss yeah and so right and so it's like it isn't change that's the problem it's like you don't want to lose your identity as i'm good at this <laughs> Of course. And so that's, yeah, that's a certain kind of threat. Yeah, it's, it is, it is the loss of this like image. And, and I think the other thing that was interesting for me to like observe for myself is how these, you know, someone, I think it was actually Gareth who's been on the show and who you and I have both worked with. I think it was him who explained this thing to me. And I don't know if I've ever said it here before, but like we were talking about trauma and Basically, what he said was like, when you've had, and I'm sorry, Gareth, if you're listening to this, and I totally butcher what what you told me, but you know, it stuck for a lot of years. When you've experienced real trauma that's like deep in you, then if you have an experience that even reminds you very lightly of that trauma, like all of the feelings and severity of the original trauma, like immediately right are present they're back so hello it's like even if you get a whiff of a thing you're just yeah, like yeah. oh no i'm back so i'm only saying that as preamble because truly sunday morning jam band not it's not like a juilliard audition you know <laughs> but but i have a lot of trauma from being a young person in this incredibly competitive environment and like a lot, there was, it was a lot of pressure. Like I was under a lot of pressure from ages six to 22 to do this thing with excellence. And, and honestly, even as a kid, like there was a lot riding on it. Like there was a lot riding on, on my abilities financially and in terms of scholarships and in terms of right. access to certain things. It wasn't, it, it didn't really, it didn't feel like a hobby much. <laughs> it, it really felt like yeah. this pretty high stakes thing. And so it was also just really interesting to me that like truly as I was leaving here, like nearly hyperventilating and, and on my way over there, I was like, oh, this is that thing where like I am in the car with this fucking cello going to this place to play music where I feel like I need to perform. And mm. even though the context is completely different, it's bringing up all of this like 20 years of history that doesn't yeah. really belong here because like it's not really related to this thing, but like here it is. 
It's a cello case and a bunch of baggage in the back exactly. seat. <laughs> cello case is just full of childhood memories and perfectionist tendencies. I'm glad you brought up the high stakes thing, though, because even if the stakes aren't real, but they feel high, there's a way you show up to that that's really challenging. And mm. I found with the gaming, the the fact that you're in a, what is essentially like a killer be killed environment, even though it's pretend and cartoony and not serious. Yeah. Um, it really like that monkey mind gets going. And, and like, as things start to happen, your first reaction is very fight or flighty and very mm. like out of your control. So my first instinct as I got into this was you'd hear some, you know, uh, skirmish going on over the hill. And I was like, let's run the other way. Mm. Like, let's get the hell out of here. Or someone would surprise you. And I would, I would try to like abandon ship immediately. And what I learned is that there are a set of heuristics for, for teams and players that are good at this stuff that are essentially anti-instinct heuristics mm. that you have to kind of like embody and memorize Ooh, and like lean into. What? I bet so, they're the same for, for like yeah. survival in life. Tell me. One of them is that you run into action. So mm. if as soon as you hear a leaf being stepped on, everybody converges on that thing like piranhas in the water yeah. when you drop in a piece of meat. It's just like immediate, immediate action. So as soon as you get a whiff of something, everybody goes. Yeah. And this is paired with a heuristic of complete and total communication, which is also Mm. a complete non-instinct. So when I first landed, I was like focused and holding my breath and not communicating and not sharing. And over time you learn, you listen to these pros and they're like, every single time they fire, they're calling out the degrees on the compass that they're shooting at, who they're seeing, how much damage they're doing, and the condition of that person's shields even. Mm -hmm. So they'll be like, 45 degrees, two enemies, two hits, 35, 34 damage. And it's just like, and I'm sure you get this maybe from your team of team stays, like some of that kind of habit. But it it is a constant flow of information from person to person to the point of overkill combined with that heuristic of like, go where the action is. So the second somebody says something, everybody is whipped and hustling in that direction. And it's that level of coordination that leads to victory because mm. everybody else is, is like running around trying to figure out where to put their lollipop down. And this yeah. team is like, boom, immediately taking action. Decisive. Yeah. Well, and like what that reminds me of is also like, a lot of times when we start doing work with new teams or orgs, one of the things that I say to people a lot is like, you're going to have a huge amount of cognitive load mm-hmm. initially because you don't have unconscious competence around any of basically three levels of things going on. So at the at the most macro level... We are trying something that has larger order outcomes, even though they feel like small moves, whether that's like a new tool or a new meeting type or whatever. Then there's like a level below that, which is doing the actual move of using Slack or using Notion or using an action meeting or whatever. Like you're learning that move while you're trying to sort of hold this higher order effect. And then there's a more micro version of that, which is like the the new language that you need to know to play. And so I'm like, you are going to always feel disoriented at the beginning of this because you don't actually have any of those three things. Right. You don't know enough. You don't know any of those things. And, and it's interesting to me because, you know, when you said that about like 
communicating and there's like a principle behind that. And then you're actually also like physically playing a game. And it feels very similar to me in the music context of like, they're like the rest of the people there are like looking at the chart, looking at each other, <laughs> right. playing the music and they know the fucking songs, which like, right, I right, don't right. know like Bob Weir deep cuts. Cause like yep. I grew up on Motown and I'm trying to like learn four levels of stuff at the same time. And that's just like, it's just hard. I love that. Yeah. And the parallels are are really strong because map knowledge is a huge thing. Mm. So the teams that have been playing for two or three years. They already know. They're, so there's a game I'm not very good at that is called Rainbow Six Siege. And there are very small maps like houses, buildings, etc. There are people in the game who are like, if you stand in this pixel and you look 45 degrees north, northeast, there's a hole in the wall. And that hole leads to this other part of the map. And they can listen That's in their wild. audio for like, when is someone there? There's no chance for you in an environment like that. Like you don't have, <laughs> it's not like you're just going to like come in and riff and figure it out. They have, right. they have patterns and they have depth. And the same thing, like you said about knowing people, like the character knowledge. So there are often different characters with different strengths and weaknesses and where I always fall down as a newbie is like name knowing their names. There's like mm. 24 of these freaking characters and people are just like, that's a bulldog at four o'clock. And I'm just like, wait, which one is that? I have to have like yeah. literally tape up a, a picture of these people. So I have any idea what the hell I'm doing. And I don't sound like an idiot. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> that, do- that does bring me to one thing that I wanted to talk about, which is like when you're trying to do something new that is – in a complex environment, but is coordinated with other people. What do you think about the human dynamic? Like, is it better to know the people you're coordinating with? Is it better to have them be strangers? Have you noticed certain ingredients that make that more, that coordination more possible? Like, what have you noticed? Because I definitely Mm. had some observations having played with these guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I really want to hear your observations in the in the music space because I think that is particularly important. What I've noticed is basically two two phenomenon that are both true. One is that having a shared objective creates a kind of a trust and an openness and a connection point between individuals even that don't know each other that like isn't always there if some people are just showing up to troll or to be goofing around or whatever, or they're like super duper high, like that can be a little frustrating. But I would say like <laughs> one out of two times that you get into a lobby with a gr- someone you don't know, there is a certain camaraderie there that's like, we're here to do the same thing. So let's just like, we're all Marines, right? Like, let's just go. Mm-hmm. And what has blown my mind about that part of it, the psych safety of it and the like space of it is that you will get teamed up with people that in regular course of life, would actively kick your ass, who like would never talk to you, would never Mm. identify with you, would never collaborate with you because of where they come from or their identity or what they like and don't like or whatever. But suddenly you're just all the same. Like suddenly you're just Mm. in this place where it's like complete laughter and openness. So I think there's something there about like relationships between people that really struggle in the real world that can find some common ground there. That being said, if you actually want to win every time, the mm-hmm. only teams that do that well are teams that play together all the time. Mm. Because to your point about the music, like the shorthand is incredible. You know each other's strengths and weaknesses. You know exactly what to expect. It's just a whole different animal. So it's like 
on the beginner side, you have this camaraderie. And on the pro side, you have this need for who do you practice with? So how does that map to your your jam scene? The jam scene. Well, I mean, I, I'm certain that over time, that will totally be true. That it's just like time together doing this thing synchronously will make a big difference. And it's interesting, some of the parallels that because mine is very much in person and like five feet away from, you know, human beings. I think that, I think a few things have been true for me that, that are kind of interesting and that I've sort of taken note of as a facilitator who's trying to get groups of people to do new things. <laughs> One is um, these folks, it's a, a husband and wife host it. And then there's two other musicians that come um, are like incredibly clear on what they want to be doing. So they're like, this is the time it starts. This is sort of how we roll. Like we, you know, we sort of rotate who picks the song. We rotate who sings the song, et cetera, et cetera. We are doing this for fun. We are not aiming to like play out, you know. So I think their clarity on like what they're there for was really helpful. Container design. Totally. The other things though that I really noticed were like they were incredibly welcoming but also very low pressure. Like they were very much like, we're so glad you're here. This is so awesome that you came. And if you don't like it, don't feel obligated, et cetera, et cetera. And I was also very clearly like, look, like this is new for me. I might be <laughs> fucking garbage at this. If I mess up your jam, please don't hesitate right. to not invite me back. I will be okay. Like I will recover from this. And so I think the fact that on both sides, we were like, this is casual. This is an experiment. Right. Like everybody was like, this is an experiment. And like, it's not going to be a big deal if it doesn't work out. And the fact that they were like, so kind and so like sort of complimentary made a really big difference because, right. because the fact that my preamble was basically, I have never done this before. Like I've played with bands before in my life, but when I played with bands in the past, they had music. I wrote right. my own parts. Yep. I learned those parts. And then we like performed on stages and I played my part correctly. <laughs> so I just like yeah. translated the band experience to it from like my classical training. So I really said like very openly and upfront, I was like, I don't know how to do this. Right. So this is like all new for me, et cetera, et cetera. So I think the fact that like I felt like I could say that out loud, be really clear that I was, I told them I was nervous and that we all looked at it as an experiment helped a lot. But then also the fact that they were like so excited and they were like, it's so beautiful and it like it makes such a different sound. All, all of these things, it was like, I knew that I wasn't really playing particularly well and that I can be a lot better. And the fact that even at that very first interaction, they were so encouraging of what they were hearing rather than being like, you know, you came in wrong or like you, that wasn't your eight or whatever. They were just like more fucking play more, sing more, do more, be more. We want all of it. So I think that nice. like really helped me like loosen up a little bit and kind of like lean into the experiment rather than trying to be perfect. Yeah, I love that. And it is interesting because it's a slightly higher stakes thing for you in that environment than in the the hobby that I'm describing, because you have a set of finite people that you're trying to collaborate with. And if it goes really poorly, it's not like there's 50 jam bands to choose no. from within a drive of your house, right? No. So 
So it's a little bit higher stakes in that way. Whereas in the average lobby, you drop in 20 minutes later, you get another batch of people. There's 8 mm. million people playing. Like right. you have nothing to lose by doing a bad job. And then you can start over and, and wipe the slate clean. And interestingly, for the teams that do practice together, there's such a debrief culture, such a mm. test and learn culture of like, you know, we don't need to dwell on it. We don't need to be assholes to each other. We don't need to like point fingers. We can just be like, what happened? Mm-hmm. What are we not going to do again? What are we going to do again? Or was it just a case of like bad luck? And there's yeah. a lot of that too. There's a lot of lightness about like, that just didn't work out. Like we don't need to blame anybody for that. It just, we just had a bad, we ended up in the wrong spot at the wrong time and yeah. we got pinched and like that there was yeah. nothing we we're going to do about it. So let's just get back in there. I like the number of at-bats. Like it's yeah. just like more reps. And yeah, it's interesting that you say that because like several of them were very much like, oh, I fuck up all the time. Like before we even started playing, they were like, we're here to like right. experiment and learn and try stuff. And like, it does not always work out. A lot of my solos do not work out, but like, this is the place where I get to try stuff in a living room, drinking coffee. Exactly. Um, and so I think also that kind of clarity of like, no one is really here to flex. Everyone is here because they're trying to have a nice experience, but also workshop stuff and try stuff out was like, was very helpful, helpful clarity. And again, in the parallel to the work that we do in the world, how great would it be if teams sort of leaned into that? Like one of the things I often say to teams when I'm facilitating is I would rather that you like bumped up against the structure and I facilitated you than that you're like so leaned back and worried about messing up that you don't really have an experience. Right. So like, I'd rather you like overreached a little bit and and had to be reined in. And yes. and that's that's the vibe of this group and I would love to see more teams really being like not like I'm going to question the structure, I'm going to question the <laughs> practice, but I'm going to like lean so much into the practice that I almost right, fucked up. That I hit the edge. Yeah. Yeah. It, it it does bring to mind for me the fact that there there really are in the world of business and music and games two cultures, ultimately, two cultures mm. of air quotes excellence. The the culture that is like humble and open and iterative and inviting and psychologically safe and the culture that is like quite aggressive and quite unpermissive. And, and that definitely, ha- I mean, in these games, there are v- specific games and specific lobbies where people will just be like, you're trash go away. Like, you're not welcome here. You're a complete idiot. They say things that I'm really not allowed to say on this podcast, even with an explicit rating, because they don't align with my values, but they will say (laughs) terrible things. And you're just like, that's not a learning environment. Like, that's just someone with mastery who's being a dick. And then there's the exact opposite at that same level, at that same echelon. There's a set of people who are just like, it's cool. It's cool, dude. Like next time, maybe try this. But like, you know, it's just practice, like been there. You just got to get those reps, you know, just like a completely different way of holding space. And I think in, in business, in music, in games, in life, you kind of have to pick your team. Like who, which, which of those are you going to be when you have mastery? Yeah, totally. And which one gets you the better performance? It's (laughs) like, you know, in this case, and, and I think this, this goes to a lot of what we talk about in terms of just like motivational theory and, you know, being theory why humans is like, Nobody shows up to play a game or be in a meeting or go to a jam band hoping that they do a fucking terrible job. Everybody shows up to those situations 
wanting to do the best that they can do unless there's something really weird going on. Yeah. And so having, so it's like if, if the host of this jam band had been like, you know, two songs in like, yeah, like you're not really hitting it or like, you're not really doing enough that this is additive or whatever. It's like, I was already paralyzed basically with fear. Right. I'm someone, already there. Someone being a, like a shithead about it and being super critical in that moment was not going to get them or me a better anywhere. performance. Because yeah. I was already like halfway paralyzed. Yeah, that kind of like dominance behavior was not going to motivate me. It was just going to make me like more worried than I already was. I'm so glad you said that too, because it reminded me of one other thing that I was excited to share about this world that I don't know how to bring into the world of Ooh. organizations, which is when you log in and get started, there are two different modes to choose from. Oh. Ranked and unranked. Okay. What does that unranked mean? Unranked is it doesn't matter what happens. Like you win or lose, draw, it doesn't affect your your status in the system. Okay. Ranked is you lose, you lose status. You win, Ooh. you gain status. And so there are badges and credentials and leaderboards and all these things that you can like legitimately move up, but ultimately lead to going pro quite, mm. quite literally. But if you're an unranked, it's like, who gives a shit? And so mm. what is really frustrating for me and for others is when someone shows up to one of those two contexts without the right headset. Mm. So someone shows up to ranked high and they're just completely throwing the game and you're stuck with them. Mm -hmm. And it's like, this is not that like, this is game right, time. What are you doing here? And then vice versa, someone that's in unranked being like so hardcore and ridiculous. And you're just like, excuse me. Right. What, there's zero reason for that attitude in here. Right. And it is about context and it's about like a shared purpose or a yeah. shared orientation. Like what version is this? And what I love about the jam band context is if we're in the basement having coffee, we've all like, we've all agreed to the, the idea that this is chill time. Yeah. We're not totally. on the stage at Lincoln Center. We're not at, exactly. This is not, this is not for our college scholarship. <laughs> we can just, you know, everything right. We can on play it. some Bob Dylan deep cuts and just like have a good time. <laughs> One of the things that I, no, so I've now been twice. I was invited back, incidentally. Of they were course. Very, they were very lovely. And it, it's a funny, like, now it's sort of like a funny mutual admiration situation because they're like, only one of the people who shows up there can read music. And they're good musicians, but like, you know, they're just, they're self-taught. Self-taught, yeah. Musicians. And, and they're like, it's so amazing what you can do. And I'm like, it's so amazing what you can do. <laughs> right, uh, and right. they're just like, they're like, no. And I'm like, but, <laughs> yes. but also, yeah, like, yeah. Cause like, I can't listen to the radio and like, just play along on right. three different instruments and have it sound good. And they all can do that. So in any case, one of the things that I noticed last, so I've been twice. So one of the things that I noticed last time was there's like a counter intuitive way of being with this different context. And what I mean by that is like, because I have this orientation to traditional ways of learning and performing music, where my mind went once I had been was like, okay, order of operations now is like, I listen to all of this music until I like have it enough in my head that I sort of know what's coming. I like write down probably the most common chords that I'm seeing so that I like, ha so I can start to like form some scales in my brain. 
et cetera, et cetera. I sort of like had this little like plan in my mind of how I was going to do that. So I did some of that in between. I like listened to some music and I wrote down some chords and I did some stuff. And I was like, I'm going to be better. I'm going to really be better because I did this. And what I found about an hour in the last time I was there was for whatever reason that I cannot explain to you, the way that I can actually play best is just by watching Jim. Like, I can look at the chart, read the chords there, and then if I just watch it, probably because I was in chamber music groups for such a long time that rely completely on looking at, you know, a small number of other players with no conductor. Totally. I actually can follow a chart much more easily and much more intuitively just by watching him because I can, like, see the patterns. He plays the guitar and he sits next to me. I can, like, see the patterns repeating and, like, I deeply understand the structure of what the written music would look like if I watched Jim. And I'm only saying that because it was like another funny counterintuitive thing of like, even after having the experience, I still defaulted to like, this is how I'm going to plan and prepare my way out of this. And then in the room, I was like, here's the thing I've never done before that seems to be working better (laughs) than any of that. Yeah. And it was just like, it's such a, it's so weird. I love that. And I love the idea that, I mean, first of all, you can't kind of practice your way into a reality because it's not the same thing. Like it's Turns out. Know, drill, drills are not reality. And I love the idea that, that both looking at or watching or observing someone, if you have kind of a master apprentice relationship or even just literally observing someone who has a little bit more context knowledge than you can actually raise your level. Yeah. And that is something that I have found for sure is that when I get lobbied up with really, really good people, and I am not that, the level I play at is much, much higher. Totally. Because I'm I'm like a little bit drafting, you know, and not yes. just like getting defended by them, but literally like noticing what they're doing and how they're doing it and picking up those cues. Right. And suddenly it's like, oh, that's how they handled that. Right. That's how they handled that. And you start to build up a, a different approach and you're not, and it isn't necessarily there for you the next game if they're not. Like there is right. a relational component to it, which is very, very cool. And I think that's true in facilitation for us as well, actually. I do too. And what it's making me think about is like, I didn't, because I haven't said any of this out loud before, but like, I think what is happening in that moment is like, I stop orienting to what is the music and am I playing it correctly? And I reorient to like, how do I play with Jim? Yeah, it's more relational. And it's like, I've been playing with other musicians since I was six. I (laughs) I know how to play a counterpart to someone else's part if I can like get out of the head of like what am I supposed to be doing here and then also to your point like he is very good at jamming and he's very good at like taking his eight and soloing and he's like all of these other things that I don't know how to do so it's like just looking to my right and watching that person just like makes me better at it yeah I like that because it is it's another way of getting into flow yeah because effectively in all these improvisational spaces complexity spaces what you're really trying to do is get out of your head. <laughs> exactly. The end of the day, right? Get out of your head, stop narrating your life and just be in the moment. And, exactly. and it's hard to do that when you are, when you're not looking around and when you're not like in relationship with others. Yeah. But if you're really in it, there's no room for that. You know, you can't be simultaneously thinking like, I hope I'm doing this right while you're right. actually like going back and forth with someone. Right. Or being like, okay, A is next. So if we're moving to the A 
cord, then I'm going to do that. Like, it just doesn't work when you're trying to like be in the experience and be contributing to the experience, not trying to like control the experience. Sometimes I think the work that we do at, at actual work is a little too slow to unlock some of that space. Mm, like totally. the way the way that we do meetings and facilitation and decisions and things like that, they can be quite drawn out. And as a result, there's a lot of room for me to get in my head yeah. instead of just play and just be in the yeah. moment. So, and there's room because there's so many of us sometimes in a meeting, et cetera. So I think like figuring out ways to make less room for escaping into my brain is an mm-hmm. interesting experiment. For work. That is an interesting experiment because it's. <laughs> I think in those moments it can be very easy to like optimize and over optimize rather than just be in it and try something. That's cool. That makes sense. That's one of the biggest shifts, actually. That's one of the biggest shifts that I feel like I talk about with newer people to the ready. I've had two conversations this week where people were like getting lightly prepped for an internal meeting and were like, "Give me some ideas about." you know, what to say here or what the takeaway should be or whatever. And I was like, just go with like two prompts and trust the group, like trust the wisdom of the crowd that like something good will emerge. The thing that you're looking for will emerge and, and you will have the wisdom to see it when it does. You don't have to do that work by yourself in preparation and then show it to the group. You can like prompt the group, whether that's like your video game team or your jam band And then just trust that the thing is going to show up in the room. Yeah, love that. And I do think it's true that almost regardless of your level of mastery, if you just get into a noticing mode and you just speak really candidly with everybody, I don't care whether it's music or games or real life, just saying like, hey, it feels low energy right now. Did Mm -hmm. I do something wrong? Could I do something differently to change that? It just like immediately cuts through the mustard. Yeah. And and people will, if you have good colleagues or you have good partners, they'll immediately show up to that and be like, yeah. to your point about the wisdom of the crowd, like, you know what, you're right. Or I'm loving this. And then you feel differently. Or hey, how about we try this? And and you right. don't have to come in with this perfect plan or be the the master facilitator. You just have to come in with good noticing muscles and just totally. play play music. Exactly. All right. Well, that seems like a reasonable place to shut this whole thing down. Wrap it up. Wrap it up. As they say. Uh, I as love they twirl it. their finger. This was really fun to talk about. I really enjoyed this. Hopefully you guys enjoyed it too, listeners. Leave us a review, please. We read them. We like them. We want more. Thank you. Yes, listeners. Uh, a quick <laughs> tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Maybe we'll start using some instruments and uh, controllers in the future. Exciting. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.